Well, again, uh, great to be here with you this morning. Uh, I've almost died three times in the ocean. Well, twice in the ocean, once in a, in a lake. And twice it was because I was rescuing someone else. The first time was in the year 2000. Uh, was in Okinawa, Japan, and uh, my mother and my aunt were visiting, and, and a typhoon had come onto the island, and uh, that just means a hurricane for these, your, your parts of the, the world, but it spins in a different direction. Uh, a typhoon had come, and that just meant we were locked inside for several days, but after the typhoon moved on, it, it sucks all the clouds with it, and so it becomes a very beautiful day, and you're itching to get out of the house, and so uh, we said, let's go down to the beach, and we, we headed to the beach, and uh, it just looked awesome. And so we took some friends and me and a friend said, we want to do some boogie boarding. And so we put on our, our reef booties, our dive gloves, took out our boogie boards and, and headed out towards the reef. And, and the tide was a little bit out. So you had to walk quite a ways uh, in knee deep water. But I, it didn't take long for me to realize that something wasn't right. Though everything looked fine on the surface, uh, this, this wasn't right. Because I looked down and it felt like I was standing in a river, not because of the waves coming in and out, but because of the riptide going side to side. And I said to my buddy, I said, hey, Brandon, I don't, I don't think we should be out here. I'm going to head back in. I said, okay. And, and as I was heading back in, I noticed off to the side, about 100 yards, some divers that were coming back. Uh, they apparently wanted to get out as well, and they were coming back from their dive. And, and they were struggling because they had to come up through this little crevasse that uh, the, the riptide was coming from two different directions and meeting in the middle uh, and crashing these waves right in the middle. It looked like a washing machine sort of thing. And I could tell the situation was very dangerous, and some were struggling to get out. And, and I saw one that would swim very, very hard and get close to where he needed to be to, to get up and stand up and take off his fins and, and walk out, uh, only to be swept back out. And, and so I, I kind of made my way over there, and I, I yelled out, are you, are you okay? And he's like, no. And uh, he's like flailing now. I'm like, great. What, I, I don't have fins on. I don't have anything on. There's nothing I can do really to help you. Uh, and... and uh, so what I did is because I realized after the fact, the reason why he was coming all the way in and getting swept out again is because he had no, uh, no gloves on and, and the reef was razor sharp. The rock, the lava rocks razor sharp. And so he would get there, but he couldn't hold on to the rock because it was tearing up his hands uh, and he'd get swept out before he could get off his fins. And so I saw this, and uh, I, I, I think we, I don't even know what I, if I said anything, but I, I reached down with one hand with my gloved hand, and, and I reached in and I held on to the rock, and in my other hand, I, I stuck it under the water so that he could see as he was swimming. And, and so he made one last great ditch effort to swim with all of his energy to come. And I, holding onto the rock, I, I grab him and I pull him up, this, this Marine. He's a big guy, like 250 pounds with a wetsuit on, a weight belt, and a 50-pound uh, uh, oxygen tank. Yeah, I'm pretty strong, I know. But um, <laughs> I pick him, I, I hold him up, and he kind of just collapses in my arms. I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I'm just trying to hold him. A wave hits me and knocks us over almost off the ledge. And so I just realized I have to hold him with one hand, hold on to the rock with the other hand. And I realized he wasn't collapsing. He was trying to bend down with the, the gear on and to take off his fins. And so I fi we finally get this and I'm, I'm like helping him out. And then uh, as I'm walking out, he's just trying to, trying to recover. And uh, as he kind of starts to come to with very 
let's just call colorful, if you are here last week, level eight or nine Marine Corps language. He, he's uh, lamenting what just happened and saying, you bleepity bleep save my life. You bleepity bleep. And, and I was thinking, man, yes, this, is, this would be a good time to share the gospel with this guy since he just di- almost died. Uh, but I couldn't, I, I couldn't find the bridge. I couldn't find the bridge from the Marine Corps eight and nine level to the gospel. And I'm just like, yeah, man, uh, I'm glad you're okay. And I'm taking him back to his friends and his friends are kind of exhausted and they look at him and they're like, what's up with you, pansy? But they didn't say pansy. Uh, and uh, and uh, he's like, this guy just bleepity bleep saved my life. And uh, um, they're like, whatever, dude. And, uh, and I was just like, well, uh, have, a, have a good day. And I, I, I get it. I failed the evangelism. I saved his life. So maybe God has a purpose for him. But um, I, I head back to the beach where my mom, my aunt, my wife are, are, are sitting, enjoying a beautiful day. And they're like, what are you doing over there? I'm like, what do you mean, what am I doing? Is that one of your buddies? No, I don't go up to random people in the ocean and bear hug them from behind, no. I'm like, I, I, we almost died, he almost, I saved his life. They're like, huh. I'm like, you know, now that was a date, it was a very, because from their vantage point, blue sky, nice ocean, beach, sunscreen, umbrella, everything looked perfect. Everything looked fine. And, uh, and I think of that a lot as we've, as we've moved back and we've moved back to uh, the suburbs and uh, have moved off the mission field. And, and I've, I've made it no secret that it wasn't my you know, first passion to come plant a church in the suburbs because everything looks good. I mean, we've got manicured lawns and toes and we've got garage doors and soccer trophies. We've got uh, all the things that look great from the surface. And so when I said, oh, okay, we got to move back here, we got, God is calling us back, and so we're going to plant a church, and I kind of lamented that, but I, I want to let you know that God has really uh, been encouraging me. God has really get, grown my heart for the suburbs. I, I love every week to come, to come, whether it's in our gospel community or here on Sunday morning, and, and to worship God with you. Because here's the deal. I know now, even though I'm a product of the suburbs and, and see it from a different angle, that, that beyond the surface, behind the doors, there are real people created in God's image that, that are suffering and are distant from God. And, and there, there is pain in, in the suburbs. Now, you don't get any street cred from being a church planner in the suburbs, let me tell you that. So we're going to be Acts 29 church, and they're like, oh, you're going to the suburbs? Yeah, whatever, dude. Uh, But there's no street cred there. But nonetheless, God is at work. And and in this place, we, we get to be people that are holding on to the rock that is Jesus with the gloves of the gospel and reaching out to people that are desperately in need, even though everything looks good. Everything looks fine. Maybe you saw it if you, if you were reading my wife's blog this last week. She, she had a conversation with a Douglas County Health and Human Services worker, and uh, the, the worker said something to her. She said, you know, one of the biggest problems we have in Douglas County is moms that are committing suicide. These are, these are middle-class, upper-class moms. These, these are, are, are moms that just look great on the surface, but behind the closed doors, there, there is a level of depression and spiritual angst that uh, we just don't see. And so I'm loving planting a church here, and I hope we plant many other churches here. 
Now, we're in this series that we're called The Pursuit of Joy that, that we believe as a church. Our, our vision statement is we exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And we, we believe those are not two separate things. That That's one thing, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That we are, were made for joy. We were made uh, to delight in God. But we, we, because of our sin and our rebellion, we, we, we sell out for, for things of lesser joy and lesser delight. And last week when we were here, I, I read a little bit of it this week, we, we read about how Paul's one all-consuming passion was to know Jesus. And we talked about there's a difference between knowing a lot about Jesus and knowing Jesus and experiencing gnosko knowing Jesus. There's a difference between knowing about ice cream and the ingredients and how it's made and and when the, the creamy texture hits the roof of your mouth on a hot summer day. Those are very different things. And so Paul says, this is my passion. Now here's the deal though. We have competing passions. All of us have competing passions. Maybe all of us could say, yes, that's my passion too. I remember when I was a little kid, my passion was to be Steve Watson, wide receiver of the Denver Broncos. Mid-80s, early 80s or so. And, and so when recess bell rang, like I lived for recess. I don't remember anything in school, but on the, re, on, on the gravel field at Highlands Elementary School, uh, I, I was Steve Watson when we played football. And so uh, that was what I just tried to be. But uh, so I would say that was my passion. But you know what? Besides the physical limitations, um, I also like to play video games. And I like to be lazy. And I like to do a thousand other things that prevented me from becoming the next Steve Watson. A, a few years ago, I uh, saw Steve Watson in church, actually. It, it, the church had let out, and in the offices there, I walked by. And, I, and when, when famous people are near me, like, I don't introduce myself. I just say their name. I'm like, Steve Watson. And uh, he's got these massive hands, which is also a reason why I'm not a receiver. Uh, and he's got these massive hands, and he shakes my hand, and I was just like... I wanted to be you when I grow up. And he's like, dude, you're 35, okay? I don't think you need to have, no, he didn't say that, but he, I could see it in his eyes. But um, anyway, we all have passions, uh, but there's competing passions. And so uh, we all have relational, spiritual, physical uh, uh, passions, we would say. For example, relationally, I want to be a, a good husband and a good father. But, but you know what? I also want to pursue all my hobbies and my own interests. And, and sometimes they are, are in conflict. Or I, I want to be, be in really good shape. And I really also want to eat a lot of chocolate cake. And, and so <laughs> that doesn't always come together. Or, or we might say financially. I, I want to be generous. I want to have some margin in my life, and, and I want to just have God use me in that way. But I also kind of like to go out to eat all the time. And so um, we, we, there, there's always going to be competing passions. Same thing spiritually. I want to know Christ. Paul, what, what did Paul say? He said in, in verse 8, actually, I want to know Christ and his the surpassing worth, that's what it was, uh, of yeah, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, so we can say that, and that's easy to say, but the question is, how do we line up what we say with what we do? There's this principle throughout the Bible, especially found in the book of Proverbs, that we call the principle of the path. 
And that just simply is this, that uh, the, 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 de- the direction determines destination. So, so not your intentions, not all the, all the good thoughts in the world, but the direction that you're on will determine your destination. It's not a, it's not a revolutionary idea, but it's a principle that, that you can't break, it'll break you. So if I want to go to California and I get on I-70, I better go west because if I go east, I'll end up in St. Louis. No matter how much I really want to go to California, if I go east, I end up in St. Louis. It's the principle of the path. So Paul says, I want to know the surpassing worth of Jesus. But now he says, and this is the path I'm on. He's going to show us a path. If that's true of you this morning, and I hope that it is, because there is nothing more valuable in the universe than knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ. All things were made by him and for him, Scripture tells us. Well, uh, this is what happens when I don't use my notes. Uh, I did have one quote from... uh, the Imperfect Disciple. I, I read this book this last week. He's just speaking about the suburbs, and uh, I'll, I'll read that to you real quick. He said this, Jared Wilson, he says, I think the spirit at work in the suburbs tends to smother the Christian spirit. The message of the suburbs, in a nutshell, is self-empowerment, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment, Self is at the center of all things, and all things serve the self. The primary values of suburbia are convenience, abundance, and comfort. In suburbia, you can have it all, and you can get it made to order in a supersized cup with an insulated sleeve. And this book, a really good book, by the way, The Imperfect Disciple, I would encourage you, it'll help you get on the path to knowing and experiencing Jesus. Well, well, Paul gives us a, a few marks of what, what it looks like to be on the path. And the first one we see in verse 12, he, Paul says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. And that, I would say, is just a holy discontent with the status quo. Well, one of the sure indicators that you are in Christ is that you're not satisfied with your relationship with Christ. Because if you really have experienced any part of Christ, you're like, I, I want more of that. The other thing that I love about this is that, that Paul, he, he, is, he, he writes two-thirds of the letters of the New Testament. Thirty years later, this is him writing to the church that he planted. He's planted churches. He's experienced God's power and presence in his life. He's healed people. He's been caught up and seen visions of heaven. I mean, he has some amazing experiences, and he's a long way down the path, but he, he knows this. He hasn't arrived. Christ is infinite. There will not be an opportunity on this side of eternity or the next, by the way, because we'll never be infinite where we'll have full knowledge of Jesus. It will always be a journey. And, and Paul says, man, I, I don't want to just coast out the rest of my days spiritually. I don't want to just get to a certain point and say, I'm good. I don't need any more of Jesus. Me and him are good. So one of the marks that you're on the path that leads to the destination is that you have a holy discontent with where you are. Now, I say holy discontent because we are often discontent for unholy reasons, but there is a holy angst that should be in our lives. There should be a longing, a, 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 a hunger. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A holy discontent. 
I love this also because Paul is, is he's, he's confronting the, the, the false teachers, the Judaizers, these guys that said, you can have Jesus, and if you do the law and circumcision particularly, then you'll arrive, then you'll be perfect. And Paul says, no, no, no. I'm not perfect, and they're not perfect, and we press on. I love the humility of it. I, I don't want to be around anyone that, that, is, that, that thinks they've arrived spiritually. They're, they're prideful and arrogant people. And I don't want to be that kind of person. I want people that long and angst with me say, how can we together know more of Jesus? And I hope that's who we become. That's the, the first mark. This, the second one is found uh, in the next verse. Oh, go back. Let's try that again. This stupid thing. <laughs> A gospel-fueled pursuit of Jesus. And look what he says. Um, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul understood the gospel, obviously. <laughs> he, he writes it several times, but, but it's, it's not just that he understood it. He lived it. He, he understood what happened to him when he got converted. Now, now the way we often present uh, Jesus to people is, man, you know, Jesus is just begging you, please. He, he wants you to open your heart and, and come into your life. That's not what happened to Paul. <laughs> Paul was literally on his way to round up Christians to be murdered when Jesus came and rescued him. Paul will describe it elsewhere from the dominion of darkness and brought him into the kingdom of the son God loves. In that moment, Jesus made Paul his own, not because Paul was cleaning himself up, not because Paul was good enough, not because he had enough spiritual attainment, not because he appealed to Paul's free will. There was no free will in that moment. Just in grace and mercy, God comes and rescues Paul in his rebellion and his hatred and his murderous thoughts, and he takes him and makes him his own. Paul knew that Jesus made him his own. Now, if you grow in your relationship with Christ, no matter how you came to, to know Christ, eventually you'll realize that it wasn't so much you as him. It wasn't so that you were so good and open and wise and, and willing. It was God in his mercy making you his own. And so he understood the gospel of grace. He, he let the gospel fuel his pursuit of Jesus. The gospel is not against hard work. It's fueled by hard work. Not that we would earn anything, but that we would know him more. There, there is a difference. And uh, it's a, it may seem as a subtle difference, but it, it's the difference between uh, life and death. It's the difference between trying to earn your salvation and, and trying to know Jesus more. Those are very different things. And then the third mark of being on the path that leads to knowing the surpassing worth of Jesus comes in the next verse. He says that it's a spiritually disciplined life. Did I go too far? <laughs> Sorry. Let's try that again. This thing. All right. A spiritually disciplined life. Well, let me not look in Colossians, but let's go back to that. Uh, he says this. Brothers. Again, he, he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I haven't arrived yet. But one thing I do, that there's one thing on this path that I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul 
often would refer to the world of sports to draw a parallel to the world of pursuing Christ. He says it's a, it's a great picture because when you understand sports and you understand what it means to be an athlete and you understand what it means to, to train and, and strive in such a way as to win a prize, when you get that hint that is, that is present in front of us, then you start to understand what it means to be on the path to know the surpassing worth of Jesus. He says, I, I do not consider I've had one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. It's this picture of this runner. You know, no marathon runner, 26 point two miles, stops at mile 25 and is like, hey, look how far I've come. Hey, check this. Where are you guys going? Check this out. Look at all the, you know. No, that's not the time to stop. He hasn't arrived yet. And so don't, don't turn around. I watch these videos sometimes, uh, and it was a compilation of all these videos where, where guys would get almost to the finish line, and they would be on their bike. They'd raise their hands, or they'd pull up, and they didn't know that there was someone right behind them and pass them up, and they lose. It's just the saddest, most hilarious thing. And uh, because it's just like, the arrogance of it, like, I've arrived, I've won, but Paul's saying, no, I strive, I press on, I, I push forward. He says it again to the Corinthians and also to Timothy, but in the Corinthians, he says this, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you obtain, may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Grace is not opposed to hard work. We work hard because we're fueled by his grace to know and experience the surpassing worth of Jesus. I love D.A. Carson's quote on this. He says this, in his book. Well, actually, that, I'll, I'll show that later. See, this, I'm, I'm all over the place today. Um, no, when, when, when Paul says, I want you to think about sports, I want you to think, I think about the Olympics, right? I think about all, all the events that we would never watch otherwise, but when it's the Olympic time, man, you, these guys are skiing and shooting guns. Let's, let's put that on the screen. Whatever the case may be, there's something about the Olympics that makes my wife cry because they work so hard to get to that point. Uh, but, but when I think about this passage and I think about what Paul's saying, I think if Paul was here today, I think he would say, so I want you to think about Michael Phelps. I want you to think about the most decorated Olympian in the history of the Olympics. The guy who has 28 27 medals, and 23 of them are gold medals. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about specifically, uh, even though he's been to five Olympics, I want you to think about 2008, Beijing, at the very peak of his career. And the question going into those Olympics was, could Michael Phelps beat the record and get eight gold medals? The record was seven, held by Mark Spitz, 1972, but, but Phelps would, would be swimming in eight different events, and could he win all eight of them? And, and as, you, as you went along in the Olympics, we were in Okinawa, so we get to watch it live, because it was in Beijing, just a couple hours away, and so we'd watch it, and we saw Michael get his first gold and his second gold and break this world record and get his third Fourth, but now he's getting tired, and, and the margin of victory is getting smaller and smaller, and, and his fifth, and he's got to qualify for this race, and then race for the gold on this race within like an hour, and then he got his fifth, and he got his sixth, but then the seventh came up. 
The seventh was the 100-meter butterfly. It's just down and back. And he wasn't necessarily favored to win that race. A Serbian named Kavik was favored to win the race. And so the question of Olympic history is, is this the point where Michael's going to fail? Is this where he's not going get, to get the gold? And so as they started out, uh, he gets slowly off the block. Immediately, he's a half a stroke behind, and he begins to fall further so that he's in fourth and fifth place at the turn. I'll pick it up at the turn. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. One one-hundredth of a second he is. And in that moment, I'm screaming in my, my room in, in Okinawa. I'm giving my kids high five. They're like, what? It's swimming. No, I'm like, no, that is history. That was amazing. One one-hundredth of a second. How in the world did he get there? And how he got there was when he was six years old, he was in the pool. And every morning he was in the pool. And he ate 15,000 calories a day. And he trained and he had coaches and he had teammates. And he trained and he trained and he trained so that in that moment, he'd be one one-hundredth of a second faster than his competition. He pressed on. And, and when, what Paul is saying here is when you understand what it took for Michael Phelps to win uh, a wreath that is perishable, then you understand what it means to be a Christian following Christ. That same level of passion, that same level of discipline. No, more than that, we get to know Christ after all uh, should be our passion as we press on to take hold of that which Jesus took hold of us. And so we have competing passions. But when, when, when you not understand that and you understand the glory, I, I love sports. I mean, we, we get, uh, they get a bad rap, certainly. There is a lot of idolatry to them, but there's a hint of, of the spiritual life. There's a hint of glory. There's a hint of heaven when you see someone that has worked so hard and done so much. And you said, that's what I want my life to be like. But it takes discipline. It takes effort. Uh, in, the, in his book, For the Love of God, D.A. Carson put it this way. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gra- gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Well, so how, how do we put ourselves on that path? You know, when I, when I was young, I remember watching Rocky Three, and being so pumped up about that movie that after seeing that movie, I, I saw it at my grandma's house in, in Kansas. After seeing that movie, I went down to the park, and I did like four or five push-ups, and, and I tried to do some pull-ups. I ran around the park once, 
And that's it. I'm not Rocky. But here's the thing I don't want you to do as, as, we, as we move out of here this morning. Don't, don't think, wow, man, Michael Phelps. How, how do I become Michael Phelps overnight? None of us are going to do that spiritually. But you can do one thing, one tiny thing. If you understand that a, a small change in one area of your life actually does have a, a ripple effect to all areas of your life. And so each of us this week could make one tweak. So I'm going to I'm going to list a few things that are God's means for God's ends for being on the path. Now, again, I don't want you to do all of them. I want you to, between you and God, say, what's one thing that I can begin to train and and, and reflect these marks? um, Look what he says here in verse 13. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. What? what? What way should we think? Well, all that we said, that uh, there's a holy discontent for the status quo. There's a, a gospel-fueled passion pursuit of Christ. There's, there's a, a spiritual discipline. Let's, let's think that way if we're mature. And so Paul is, is giving us this idea that there is a difference between training and trying. Training and trying. We're called in the spiritual life to train. In fact, uh, I think I have it eventually on the screen here. Training and trying. He says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So how do we train rather than try? Well, let me give you one more illustration here. This comes from my Facebook news feed, a friend of mine, about her grandfather. And it was a news article from the Gold Hills Tribune, a small little town in California. But here's how it started. Listen to this. On June 4th, during Gold Hills' annual gold dust festivities, Peter Fish, a 75-year-old resident of that city, will begin a 24-hour run in the hopes of running his age in miles. Uh, that's normal to you guys? You're just like, yeah, of course, 75 miles, 24-hour run, let's do it. No, that's, let me read that again. Uh, he's 75 years old, begin a 24-hour run in hopes of running his age in miles. And he, you know what? He didn't just try. It wasn't like, man, I'm going to push this walker aside. It's my 75th birthday. I'm going out there. No, he's an endurance runner. He's trained for years. He still does. This is like four years ago. I saw last year. Oh, he's 78 now. He's running 78 miles. Now, I'm not going to go out on too far of a limb here to say that none of us could run that far in 24 hours or 24 months. I'm guessing most of us wouldn't get to 75 miles. But... Or maybe not, many of us couldn't even run a mile today, even if we tried really hard. But all of us, almost all, maybe all of us, if we trained, we could run a mile and maybe two and maybe a marathon. But that, that's, that's wrong. But you get what I'm saying. There's a difference between training and trying. And so um, how do we train? Well, there, there's a few things that, that we could do if we use God's means for God's ends. Well, first of all, Prayer. Prayer is, is connecting with God. So maybe the area, the one thing that you can just tweak in your life is prayer. And so here's what I would suggest with prayer. Pick a time and a place. This week, I'm going to, at this time and this place, I, I, that's where I'm going to pray. 
And so that's where I'm going to commune with God. I'm going to do it for three minutes. I'm going to do it for five minutes. But, but in this time, I'm going to open up the word. I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And I'm just going to think about that at this time in this place. If you don't pick a time and a place, it probably won't happen. So there's some real practical things that go involved with training. The second one would be, you know, the Word of God. So prayer is talking to God. The, the Bible is, is hearing from God. And so um, h- how might that be tweaked so that you're, you look more like a spiritual athlete? The bi- Bible reading. Maybe, maybe you tried to read the Bible from the beginning of the year all the way through. Well, I'd say, well, just try again. Or, or pick a book, read a gospel, read the gospel of John this week, or read a chapter a day. It, it's, it's a step on the path because, again, direction determines destination, not intentions. So this is how you get direction. The other thing is, I'd say, other reading. God has, has gifted us as a church with tremendous resources throughout history. I would say read, read dead guys, like uh, you know, there, there's, some, there's some good Puritans, there's Augustine, there, I mean, th- th- there's some rich stuff in church history to do that. But there's one book I do really want to suggest. He's not dead yet. He's 91 years old. J.I. Packer, his book, Knowing God, may be the best book I know of for knowing God, knowing about God, but also knowing, experiencing, delighting in God. Say, well, I can do that. I can begin to read that one book. And that will put me on a path that leads to a destination. Other, other means for God's ends to, to serve. Say, I know Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And I want to be like Jesus, so I want to serve. And in all of our gospel communities, we, we want to be a communities that also serve. And so we're trying to figure that out. But maybe you're the catalyst for your gospel community. And say, I, I found an opportunity for us to serve. And that will help train yourself in godliness. Maybe it's giving, to be generous and just say, hey, I, I want to I um, show that with my wealth, that my wealth isn't the thing that controls me, but that, but that God is more valuable than that. And so maybe it's giving. But, but in all these things, I would say, well, fasting as well. Um, in all these things, I would say, train together. Every athlete knows that this is a way to go further, faster. That's why Paul says in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Again, think of all the people that came alongside Michael Phelps to make him successful. One one hundredth of a second faster than Kavik. We got to train together. So when we train together, we think about praying. We say, maybe you find someone that you can say, hey, how can I pray for you? Or can we meet once a week? Can can we pray together if, if that's your thing? If it's Bible reading or memorization, you know, I memorize best and almost exclusively when I have other guys doing it with me. Like when I memorized the book of Philippians, it wasn't because I was spiritually strong myself. It's because I had, or the, I, we did do Philippians when I did this at the harbor, but when we did Colossians, I had three or four other guys that we met with every week and we kind of went through it. That was spurring me on. It's like the guy standing over you on the bench press and like, you can do one more. You said one more three times ago. One more, one more, one more. So we train together. Same thing with reading. Maybe you want to read Knowing God. Well, you you know, you can go further faster if you find two or three other people that say, hey, will you read this book with me? We'll get together and discuss it each week. We'll read a chapter together. You know what will happen is the night before you're supposed to meet, you'll read the chapter. (laughs) 
That's how I work. I don't know if that's you, but it, because we're training together, it spurs one another on, as Hebrews 10, 24 says. Same thing with serving, giving, and fasting. So let me just close our time here. Let me just, again, think about this as we train together. We, everything looks good on the surface, but there are people that desperately need the message of the gospel out there. And we put on the gloves of the gospel and we hold on to the rock that is Christ and we reach out our hand. And the reason we meet every week like this and the reason we meet in each other's homes is because these are those brief moments that we get out of the current of this world and we're reminded of what's true and what's right. So we do that for one another. That's why, that's why our, our gospel communities and our church attendance is important because I need you and you need me. But we also do that for the people that are our neighbors on the left and our right. There's a tremendous amount of hurting people there that need the gospel. So hold on to the rock that is Christ and hold out your hand. To that end, let me pray for us and we'll continue in our worship through communion. Father, we thank you for your word to us. I thank you that the Apostle Paul was not someone that just said he wanted to know you, but showed us with his life and his letters what it looks like to press on toward the goal to win the prize, which is you, Jesus. May we at Redemption Parker be a people that press on for the goal to win the prize. May we be a people that do it together. May we be a people that, that have a strong hand on the rock that is Christ and our other hand in the lives of our neighborhoods and our friends and our coworkers. God, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help each of us, that your spirit would would show us one step, just one step, one thing we can do this week to train ourselves in godliness. Equip us, empower us with your grace and your love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.